Uh, so we are in the middle of a sermon series called Things I Wish Jesus Had Never Said. Things I Wish Jesus Had Never Said, um, which of course is somewhat ton- tongue-in-cheek, right? We could have named it the hard sayings of Jesus. I'm trying to be a little creative, you know what I mean? Trying to get some attention. Anyway, and so it's not so much that we really wish Jesus hadn't said them as much as it is they're tough things. And the truth is in our sinfulness or I'll just talk for myself. In my own sinfulness, there are times where I run across things in Scripture and I go, oh, man, I don't want to love people that are unlovable, right? Like, I don't want to tithe. You know, there are all sorts of things that Jesus talked about. I I don't want to do that, right? But ultimately, it's not about what I want. It's not about what you want. That's sort of Brian Carroll's point this morning. Ultimately, we're here because we believe that God has revealed himself to us, not only through his word, but through his son, Jesus One of our values here at Seven Hills Fellowship is uh, that we believe in a very high view of Scripture. In other words, we believe that the Scripture is true, and it has the authority to tell us what to do. So we believe that the Scripture is true, and it has the authority to tell us what to do, especially when we don't like what it is saying to us. Does that make sense? That's exactly when we need to listen. It's easy to listen when it says things we kind of like. But when we run across stuff that is uncomfortable to us, that's precisely where we need to listen. That's really what this sermon series is all about. It's the tough things that Jesus had to say, things that some of us wish he'd never said. Here's a recap very quickly of some of those things that uh, we've been talking about. One, we talked about a section in Luke chapter 6 where Jesus says, But to you who are listening, I say, which is kind of interesting because he's assuming that some of them have stopped listening to him. But he says this, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also, right? We talked about what that means, but ultimately when we hear it, there are any number of pieces of that that we go, ooh, I kind of wish Jesus hadn't said that. I'd rather hate my enemies, right? I'd rather punch the person who slaps me. Luke 14, Jesus says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What in the world does that mean? He just told us to love our enemies. Now he's telling us to hate our families. What in the world? Obviously, Jesus here is speaking metaphorically, and he's basically saying, those things are all good things, but I have to be in first place. You have to love me most. You have to find your identity in me more than anything else. Mark chapter 10, Jesus said this, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. This is especially kind of prickly for us in America because we are um, verifiably in what we would be called the global elite. In other words, we're the 1% wealthiest people, not only on the planet, but in the history of humanity. And so whether we feel rich or not, compared to the rest of the world, compared to the history of humanity, we're wealthy. And Jesus had some tough things to say about our wealth in relationship to him. Last week, We looked at Matthew chapter eight, where Jesus said this. He said, but Jesus told him, that's this guy who said, I wanna follow you. Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Again, you read that in scripture, like, woo, Jesus, that was not so nice, you know? But again, if you understand what he's saying, you understand again that what he's saying is, is that I've got to be your number one priority. And, And ultimately life only makes sense. The puzzle only fits when I am at the top of that pyramid. That's how everything comes in and fits the way it's supposed to fit. Today, we're looking at John chapter six. Now, I don't know how many of you guys know anything about John chapter six, but it's a chunk of scripture. It's over 70 verses long, and uh, and it deals with some stuff that is really hard, not only for us to hear, but it was especially hard for the Jews in Jesus' day to hear uh, hear as well. Listen to these verses. Uh, Again, Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man, 
and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Okay, some of you just checked out. We're done, done here. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day, right? That's a tough saying. That's one of those things we go, what are are you talking about, Jesus, right? And the people that were listening to him surely said the same thing, and many of them left when they heard him say that. Uh, We're going to be looking at John chapter 6, verses 47 through 56 today. We're going to be looking at a larger chunk of scripture that that surrounds those verses we just read. And let let me begin by saying this, is that, again, this is the beginning of John, right? So this is the beginning of his gospel this letter, sort of a story that he writes about Jesus' life. Jesus, John is a, is a pastor at this point in time in Ephesus. We don't know exactly when he was writing it, but we can assume it's later on in his life. And so he's really chronicling the story of Jesus, that he lived with Jesus, right? And so what we see in the preceding chapters are that Jesus goes to this pool in Jerusalem where there's a man who's lame, and Jesus asks them this great question. He says, do you really want to get well? Do you want to get well? Jesus heals him. It's on the Sabbath. And then shortly after that, Jesus feeds the 5,000 with these loaves and fishes. Again, it's this story where we're like, what in the world? How did that happen? But of course, when people saw these things, a healing at a pool, feeding a 5,000, they're like, I don't know who that guy is, but I want to see more of what that is. I want to I be close to him. And then finally, what we see right before this section of Scripture is that Jesus walks on water. And of course, the disciples want to know, who in the world is this? You know, what kind of man is this? We find ourselves here in John chapter 6, verses 47 through 56. Jesus is speaking to this big crowd who's come to the other side of the lake because ultimately what they want is not so much him, but what they want is what he's got to offer. Let's read verses 47 through 56. Jesus says this, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these shocking statements of Jesus. I thank you for these difficult sayings of Jesus. And Father, I pray that we would um, listen in. I pray that not only would we seek to hear with our ears and understand with our heads, but Father, I pray that that we would even understand with our hearts what it is that Jesus is communicating to us. Father, as always, I want to ask that your Holy Spirit would be in this place. And Father, I want to ask that no one would be able to leave here this morning without having encountered you, the living God. I pray that you would draw uh, these people into a relationship with you. Uh, Father, I pray that you would make them fully human and help them flourish and thrive as the beings that you created them to be. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So in August of 1819, there was a whale ship that set out from Nantucket. Okay, so 1819. This whale ship is called the Essex. So I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen a documentary on the whale ship Essex. I don't know if you've ever read uh, the book that chronicles the story of the whale ship Essex. And, uh, but essentially what happened is this. The Essex was known as a lucky ship. 
right? Had been on any number of different whaling trips, never had bad weather, you know, had nothing but a full hold of whale bits and pieces. I'll let you figure out what that means. Anyway, and, and so they set out in August of 1819, knowing that it was going to be about a two and a half year trip or expecting it to be about two and a half years, right? And so 20 men climbed onto the whale ship Essex and they sailed down the coast of North America, around the coast of South America into the, the waters of the Southern Pacific. They got to the waters of the Southern Pacific uh, around um, probably in October, right? And so that trip took a long time. So they're there, and as they're sailing around the waters of the Southern Pacific, they only see a couple of whales, very few whales. And so they realize that uh, either that area has been fished out or maybe the uh, currents are different. They don't know what's going on. So they talk to several other whaling vessels that they run into there off the coast of South America. And several of these whaling vessels talk about a a new whaling ground that's been found about 2,000 miles off the coast of South America, right, to the west, way out into the middle of the ocean uh, in the middle of nowhere. And so if you can imagine this little whale ship Essex, right, which is about 88 feet long, it was basically like a floating bathtub. They began this trip 2,000 miles out uh, from the coast again of South America out into these new whaling grounds. When they got out to these new whaling grounds, sure enough, they found pods and pods of whales. There were whales everywhere. And so they began hunting, and, and the story is told that they began hunting this one day. Three whale ships, three whale boats went out, little like lifeboat-type things, and they each uh, harpooned a whale. And uh, so two of the boats got taken off, you know, sort of into the distance on what they called a Nantucket sleigh ride. And one of the boats immediately was struck by the tail of one of the whales that it had harpooned, and it was damaged. That one boat had to go back to the Essex. The man who was on that whale boat was a guy named Owen Chase. And Owen Chase uh, took their boat in. They began fixing it. He was standing up on deck. He was watching the other boats go off in the distance. And as he was watching the other boats be pulled by the whales into the distance, he looked down and he saw the biggest whale that he had ever seen. It was a whale that was about the length of the boat. He said he guessed it was 85 feet. The boat itself, the Essex, was 88 feet. And he said as he watched the whale, it was acting strangely, floating just below the surface. And he said he watched this whale as it dipped its head under the water, and he said it began, you know, pushing its tail through the water, and the waves were around the head of this whale, and it rammed the front of the Essex. And he said the Essex lurched back and forth and back and forth. And he said he watched the whale, and it looked like it was dazed. It swam off about a couple hundred yards away from the boat, and he said he watched as the whale did the same thing again, and the whale crushed the front of the Essex, right, uh, right up on the bow of the Essex, and all of a sudden the water started pouring into the hull of the Essex. So here they are, 2,000 miles out to sea. They've just been rammed by this whale and their boat. The Essex is sinking, right? And so what they do is they immediately put out in the remaining whale boat that's left that isn't damaged, and they begin to go back into the boat, and they try to get as many stores as they possibly can, but the food has been soaked by salt water. They are able to get a little bit of water, but not much, and they're stranded out there in the middle of the ocean, these two whale boats, plus this other one that Owen Chase has gotten into, and they're stuck 2,000 miles out from sea. They've got to make a decision. And the decision that they ultimately make is to try to uh, reach the southern tip of South America, which is going to be a 4,000-mile journey in these little bitty, you know, 15-foot whale boats. And so they quickly began making their way. They sort of chart everything and figure it out. Again, they've collected as much food and water as they can get, but really within just a few days, they're uh, out of food already, right? They're out of food. They've got water. It's raining. And uh, they find an island, they, they capture some turtles, they get a little bit of food. But again, uh, within just a few days, they're out of food. Again, there's enough rainwater for them to surpri- sur- survive and, and to be able to drink, but there's not enough food for them to eat, right? 
And so on January the 4th, which, by the way, is now several months later, the first man dies. They bury him in his clothes, and they dump him over the side and at sea burial. Several days later, another man dies. They do the same thing. This next time when somebody dies of starvation, they make the tough decision, which I'm not going to say here because we have little people in the room. But ultimately, you can understand what they decided to do in order to survive. And so two of the boats basically decided to start following the same procedure in order to survive. You know, it's hard to even talk about. There's a storm, and the three boats get separated. Okay, so they're out again in the middle of nowhere in the South Pacific. The boats get separated during a storm. Um, On the 90th day, the boat that's captained or led by Owen Chase, the guy who's, uh, who was on the deck when he saw the whale hit it, um, they're rescued by a boat called the Indian. But the reason they've been able to survive is because they ultimately resorted to cannibalism. Five days later, Captain Pollard's boat, who had also been separated and also resorted to the same tactics, was picked up by another whaling ship, ship called the, the Dolphin, right? And so several of those men survived precisely by resorting to cannibalism as well. Several years later, the third boat was found. This boat had been led by a man named Obed Hendricks. And this boat washed up on a Pacific island with four skeletons inside, and there were no signs whatsoever of cannibalism. They had died precisely because they refused to become cannibals and to feed on one another. So two boats decided to resort to cannibalism and survived. The other didn't, and as a result, starved to death. Right? It's a kind of a horrible story. And at the same time, um, kind of interesting as well to see what humanity will do. Now, Jesus is talking about something here that sounds an awful lot like this. In fact, it's got to be admitted right up front that when Jesus is talking this way to his listeners, that they're like, this is kind of nuts. Like, this guy's crazy, right? I mean, that's what some people would have thought surely when they heard him talking this way. And yet, part of what I'm going to tell us today is that our survival depends on our willingness to feed upon Christ. Our survival, like those two boats that did survive, depends on our willingness to feed upon Christ. First question we have to ask, though, is what does that mean, okay? What does that mean? Well, let's, let's do this. Let's say what does it not mean, and then what does it mean? So what does it not mean? Well, the good news is it does not literally mean eating Christ's flesh and literally drinking his blood, okay? Whew. Thank goodness that's not what he's talking about, right? We've seen it. Thank you. So they've got a fist bump up here. Awesome. We already know that in all of these other hard sayings of Jesus, it's all metaphorical language. And what's interesting is the metaphorical language he uses is actually talking about something that's harder than the initial shocking thing, if that makes sense. And the same thing is true here as well, right? And so this hard saying of Jesus is, is a metaphor, that it, uh, but it does not mean literally eating his flesh or literally drinking his blood. I'm going to argue in just a moment that this bread and blood metaphor ultimately points to something of much deeper significance. And that's the next question is, okay, if that's what it doesn't mean, doesn't mean literally eating his flesh, what does it mean? Well, on one level, feeding in Christ means believing in him, right? So part of the way we know that is there is a rhetorical device that's used that would have been used particularly 2,000 years ago. And this rhetorical device is called an inclusio. And so an inclusio is where at the beginning of a section you have essentially what is a thesis statement. And then you've got a bunch of stuff. And at the end, you've got a restatement of that thesis sentence, if that makes sense. You make a sandwich out of it so that people understand what it means, right? And so if you look up on the screen here, what you'll see is this inclusio is found at the beginning and the end of this chapter of John chapter 6. It says this, then they asked him, that's the people who had come around to see him, what must we do to do the work, works God requires? Jesus answered, 
the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent, right? And so this is about belief. And then at the end of this chapter, he says this, the spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they're full of the spirit and life, yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. So ultimately, this passage is about, is about belief in Jesus. It's about believing in him. And he uses this metaphor of feeding upon him. So it means belief. And so on one level, it does mean belief, but it's not just giving sort of intellectual um, assent to something that's true. It's much, much more than that. Ultimately, feeding on Christ means trusting in him. James tells us even the demons believe. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is trusting in God for our identity, trusting in God for our safety, trusting in God for our self-worth, trusting in God for when we die, where we go, and, uh, and what we experience, right? So belief in Jesus is ultimately trusting in him. Let me use a quick illustration. So when I was in college, I was a senior, and uh, there was a, a guy um, who was a, I sort of knew a little bit. His name was Brad Hummel. And uh, Brad, out of the blue one day, said, hey, BP, would you like to go rock climbing with me? So I said, sure, you know. I didn't really ask any safety questions. That's not how I was operating as a 21-year-old at the time. And uh, we went over to a section of Lookout Mountain called Sunset Rock. And Sunset Rock is this beautiful place on the Tennessee side of Lookout Mountain. It's about a 100-foot cliff. And so we got out there, and, you know, we parked in a little parking area, and he opened up the trunk of his car, and we grabbed out the harnesses and the ropes and all the climbing stuff, and we walked to this cliff. And we walked over to the cliff, and uh, there was a pine tree, which was probably about 12 inches in diameter, growing out of the rock. And so Brad took the rope and quickly tied it onto this, you know, little pine tree, right? And then he threw the rope, which was however big the climbing rope is, half an inch in diameter, he threw it over, and it landed, you know, in, uh, on the, the floor at the base of this cliff. And then he gave me this harness, which was made out of these little nylon things, and I stepped into the harness. And uh, at no point in time did I doubt the reality or the veracity uh, of, of any of those items, right? I didn't doubt that that little pine tree would hold me. I didn't doubt that that... Uh, you know, the, uh, the harness would hold me. I didn't doubt that the rope would hold me. I didn't have an, even have any questions um, about uh, my buddy Brad Hummel, right? I didn't all of a sudden go, I wonder if he's a psychopath. And he's just gonna, as soon as I get, you know, 30 feet down, he's gonna get a rope, I mean a knife and just cut the rope, right? And then say, well, you know, whatever. I didn't know any of that stuff. But I wasn't asking those questions. I believed sincerely in all those things uh, until I actually put the rope through the harness and I started to lean over the edge, and my body was horizontal to a 100-foot drop. And all of a sudden, as I was leaning over the edge of Sunset Rock there, and it was 100 feet below, I looked at Brad, and the smile on his face went from being just a well-wishing smile to like some sort of a demonic evil type thing. I was like, did I offend his girlfriend or something? Like, have I done something? Anyway, and the rope, which had seemed so huge a few minutes before, all of a sudden seemed like a spider web. And the pine tree, which made so much sense to tie off to a few minutes ago, because it's 12 inches in diameter, all of a sudden looked like a twig, right? Because there's a big difference between believing in something and putting all of your trust in something, right? And that's what Jesus is talking about here, where he says, if you want to truly have this life that's fully life, you've got you to believe in me, you've got to trust in me, you've got you've to feed upon me. All of your well-being, all of your security, all of your identity, all of your safety needs to be found in me, you need to feed upon me. So the question is, do you believe in Jesus, right? I bet there are a lot of people in here today that believe in Jesus. That's not really the question. The question is, do you trust in Jesus? Do you trust Jesus with your family? I, I tell you, it was so easy for me to believe in Jesus for years and years until I had my own children. 
And then all of a sudden, when I realized the prayer, you know, God, I give you everything. It didn't just mean me anymore, right? And my physical well-being, all of a sudden it meant these little bitty people who I'm in charge of caring for and loving and taking care of. And so all of a sudden now when I pray, God, everything I have is yours, I pray it sheepishly and kind of seldom. Because in reality, I, I sometimes doubt whether or not God really loves my kids as much as I do. I really doubt actually sometimes whether or not he's going to do what's best for them or what's good for them. And so I have to kind of whisper that prayer when I feel really, really strong because so often it's hard for me to trust Jesus with my family. Do you trust Jesus or do you believe in him? Do you trust Jesus with your life, right? I mean, some of you guys have experienced amazing amounts of suffering in your life. You've experienced hurt. Some of you have stared down the barrel of cancer for yourself or a loved one and need to ask, do I trust, do I really trust him with my life? Do I trust him with my job? Do I trust him with these relationships? Do you believe in Jesus or do you trust in him? Jesus says, you've got to feed upon me. You've got to ultimately trust in me. It's the only thing that's going to make order or sense of your life. But the question is, do we trust him for what? Or do we trust him as what? Right? That's kind of the question. That's what the, the meat of this passage gets to. And so one of the things that Jesus talks about here is you've got to trust me ultimately as the true bread of life. That's what Brian mentioned a little while ago. Look at verses 48 through 51. Jesus says this, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread, which came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now to understand what in the world Jesus is talking about there, this bread of life, all of a sudden we have to go all the way back to Exodus chapter 16, which is exactly what his listeners would have understood. Exodus chapter 16 is uh, this passage where the, the Jews have been rescued out of slavery, 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They had witnessed the 10 plagues. They had witnessed the Lord passing over them in the Passover. They had witnessed the parting of the Red Sea and the destruction of their enemies, right? They had, they had witnessed all of these amazing miracles. And here they are a few days later, grumbling, doubting the Lord's goodness to them. Can I really trust him is what they're really asking, right? So Exodus chapter 16, I'm gonna read this section. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if we'd only died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate the food we wanted, all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then, Mo then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. And those of you who know the story because you went to Bible school when you were seven, or because for some other reason you heard it at church one, one day, you know that the next morning that there was this amazing miracle of manna. And so for 40 years in the desert, God rained down manna upon his children that they might have more than enough food to eat. What's interesting is in Exodus chapter 16, the very first time the manna rains down, this section's very interesting. It says this. It says, the next morning, the Lord appeared, right? It says he, the Lord appeared in, a, in, a, in this cloud. And then it goes on to talk about the appearance of all of this manna. And in the narrative, it shows all the people going out and getting this manna. They're so excited about the manna. And you know what they're not excited about? They're not excited about the fact that the presence of the Lord is right over there. Does that make sense? And so here we've got this story. Jesus has fed the 5,000 and they're back for more. In fact, Jesus confronts them and he, it's, he says this. It says, Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In other words, you're kind of the same as the Israelites were all the way back there in the desert. I'm right here in front of you, but you're more concerned about this physical bread 
than you are about the spiritual bread. You're much more concerned about the bread of earth than you are about the bread of heaven. See, manna offered the Israelites physical sustenance and satisfaction and nourishment and nutrition for a moment, but the bread of heaven, Jesus, offers sustenance and strength and nourishment forever unto eternal life. All of a sudden, this whole thing starts making us think about the Lord's Supper, which we're gonna celebrate in a little while. There's a book by a lady named Shauna Nyquist called Bread and Wine. In her book, she has to say this about receiving the Lord's Supper, which is ultimately looking forward from this passage. She says this, we don't come to the table to fight or to defend. We don't come to prove or to conquer, to draw lines in the sand or to stir up trouble. We come to the table because our hunger brings us there. We come with a need, with fragility, with an admission of our humanity. The table is the great equalizer, the level playing field many of us have been looking everywhere for. The table is the place where the doing stops, the trying stops, the masks are removed, and where we allow ourselves to be nourished, right, from the bread of life, the bread of heaven, the true managed. We allow ourselves to be nourished like children. We allow someone else to meet our need in a world that prides people on not having needs, on going longer and faster, on going without, on powering through. The table is a place of safety and rest and humanity where we're allowed to be as fragile as we really feel, okay? Now, none of you are gonna admit it today. Either you're too young to feel fragile yet because somebody else is buffering you from the suffering and the difficulties of life, or you're just faking it because everybody else reaches a point where you feel utterly and completely fragile. And what Shauna has tapped into here is exactly what Jesus was tapping into when he's talking to the Israelites. He's basically saying, the only way for you to be nourished, the only way for you to be strengthened, the only way for you ultimately to have all of your needs met is if you feed upon me, right? Spiritually, ultimately not, not, uh, not really eating his flesh, not really drinking his blood, but spiritually trusting in Christ completely. And we do that in the Lord's Supper in just a moment. Listen to what C.S. Lewis had to say about the Lord's Supper in a book called Letters to Malcolm. He says this, yet I find no difficulty in believing that the veil between the worlds, nowhere else for me, so opaque to the intellect, in other words, it's so hazy, it's difficult to see, is nowhere else so thin and permeable to divine operation. Here, a hand from the hidden country touches not only my soul, but my body. Here, the prig, the don, the modern in me have no privilege over the savage or the child. Here, in the Lord's Supper is big medicine and strong magic. I'm sure he uses those very intentionally. The command, after all, was take, eat, not take, understand. Does that make sense? I mean, part of what C.S. Lewis is always so good at here is he's getting to the heart of the matter, which is somehow, in some way, this meal today allows us to feed on Christ, to trust in him, and to be nourished, not just spiritually, but even physically. We need the presence of of Christ. We need to be nourished. We need to be satisfied, trusting in Jesus as the bread of life. So that's one of the things it means to trust, to believe. The second thing we see in this passage is that trusting in Jesus is also trusting in him as the true Passover lamb. Listen to verses one through four. It says this, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. You can tell that John's writing to Greek listeners. That's why he uses the name Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. Now, 
John is, again, he's a pastor. He's kind of an author. And he's writing the history and the life of Jesus. And what he does is he, he highlights different themes in the Gospel of John's. John. He, ha- he, he highlights this idea of light and darkness. He, he, lights, he highlights the idea of eternal life. He highlights the idea of Jesus being the word. He highlights the divinity of Jesus. But he also highlights Jesus as the Lamb of God or the true Passover Lamb. So John's always highlighting these issues. And in, again, in particular, he's basically saying Jesus is the true Passover lamb. In fact, four different Passovers frame the gospel of John. John writes his whole story based upon this idea of the Passover as if to say Jesus is the true Passover lamb, right? Two times at the beginning of John, we have the words of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says this in verse 29 of John chapter 1. His disciples are around him. John the Baptist's disciples are around him. Jesus comes along and John the Baptist shouts out. The next day, it says, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? In other words, what John the Baptist is saying, what John, the author of the gospel, is saying is Jesus is the true Passover lamb, which they would have understood. Like They would have understood that that was being set free. They would have understood that that meant that God's wrath was placed upon this lamb instead of them and, and ultimately upon the Egyptians as well in order to set them free from their slavery, Right, But we have to go back to Exodus chapter 12 to understand, again, the content here. So if you will, look at verse 21 on the screen. It says this, Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and to strike you down, right? So when John emphasizes the fact that here's Jesus, the true Passover lamb, what is John saying? John is saying this, he's saying, when the blood of Christ covers over you, you've got nothing to fear, right? There's nothing else to worry about. John the Baptist says this, this is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? You don't have to worry about being God's enemy anymore. You don't have to worry about being sinful in his sight anymore because what God did for those of us who trust in his son Jesus alone is he took all of our sinfulness and he placed it on the Passover lamb. He took the righteousness of Jesus who lived this perfect life and he gives it to us and he punishes Jesus in our place on the cross. And so when we come to this table today called the Lord's Supper, whatever you call it from your past, what you can understand is that God is no longer angry with you if you trust in his son Jesus alone. There's, there's, there's no more punishment for you if you trust in Jesus, his son, alone as your savior. If you feed upon Christ, if you trust completely in him as your Passover lamb, then you are good with God. Then he looks at you and he sees you and you're beautiful. He looks at you and he sees you and you're righteous. Despite what your real record is, he sees the perfection of Jesus over you. And so today in the Lord's Supper, both of these truths come together. And different people need to hear these truths today. Some of you need to be reminded that you've been rescued, that Jesus is your Passover lamb, that you don't have anything to fear any longer, right? Some of you need to hear that today. Some of you need to hear that the blood of this true Passover lamb, also the bread of life, that Jesus is enough to sustain you, that he's enough to strengthen you. Some of you today need to hear that God is no longer angry with you, 
because of whatever you did two weeks ago or two years ago, right? Or whatever you did when you were 17 or whatever you did last night. You need to hear that if you trust in Jesus alone, you have nothing to fear anymore because God's wrath has been poured out on his son. Some of you need to hear that God will strengthen you from this meal today spiritually as he feeds you in Christ, that you're strengthened, that you're satisfied, that you're nourished, and that you're set free. Does that make sense? Let me take a moment And I'm going to read the words of institution for the Lord's Supper. Then I'm going to invite you to go and take this Lord's Supper. But before I do that, let me remind all of us in this room this morning that this meal of bread and wine, which is in front of me and and here in front of the exit door, the other stations are bread and grape juice. But let me remind all of you that this meal today is a family meal. And so it's only for those people who have accepted God's invitation into their family, into his family, by belief in his son, Jesus. And so if you haven't come to the point yet of trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, then I would just invite you to sit back and to watch the children of God as they feed upon, trust upon Christ, their true Passover lamb, and trust in Christ as the bread of life. Let me read now the words of 1 Corinthians 11. It says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to pray. And as I'm praying, I want you just to wrestle with um, whether or not you believe in Jesus or whether or not you trust in him. Right? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for these hard sayings of Jesus. Father, I would ask that um, you would enable us to move past unbelief into belief. I pray that you would enable us to move past belief into truly trusting in your son, Jesus, for our righteousness and for our safety and for our security and for our rescue. Father, I pray that we would trust in your son, Jesus, for our strength and our nourishment and our ability to make it through a life um, that is incredibly difficult, Father, that, to make it through a life that um, is filled with doubt on our behalf, that is filled with weakness and frailty. Father, I pray that your son Jesus would nourish us and sustain us and fill us as the bread of life. Father, I pray that your son Jesus would, uh, would ultimately be our hope as our true Passover lamb. And so, Father, let us come to you. Let us take this bread and this wine, ultimately declaring that we trust in your son, Jesus, alone. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. That Jesus offered his life in our stead in order that we may be set free. And so, Father, um, we worship you today. We come and stand before you today as those who have been set free and nourished because of our hope and our trust in your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Receive now the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and may he give you his peace. Amen.